When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Thrusting space science into the audio dimension, this is Naked Astronomy. How can we solve the problem of space debris? And what will we learn from LOFAR? This edition of the Naked Astronomy podcast comes from the RAL Space Conference at the STFC's Rutherford Appleton Laboratories. We'll explore the crossover between space science and medicine, catch up with curiosity, and find out how a new satellite helps to test the latest tech. I'm Ben Valsler, and this is Naked Astronomy. Supported by the STFC, this is Naked Astronomy. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientist.com forward slash astronomy. We'll head over to the Rutherford Appleton Laboratory shortly, but first, new research published just this week offers new solutions to a long-standing problem. What are ultra-luminous X-ray sources? To find out more, Naked Scientist Chris Smith spoke to Tim Roberts from Durham University, one of the authors of the work published this week in Nature. There's a long-standing mystery in X-ray astronomy, which is the nature of these objects called ultraluminous X-ray sources. They're the brightest X-ray sources we see in other galaxies outside of the central X-ray source we see in some galaxies, which is um, a big, what we call a, a supermassive black hole. We've thought for a while that they are other black holes, smaller black holes, but the real mystery is how big they are, whether they are similar to some black holes we see in our own galaxy that are roughly the size of our sun, or whether they're something in between, something we call an intermediate mass black hole. And so what this work, what we do when we look at ultraluminous X-ray sources is we're trying to discover the size of the black holes. How does looking at the X-ray sources actually tell you how big the black holes are? There's a very useful physical property of black holes that we it gives us an indication of how big they might be, and that's simply how bright they are. It turns out that there's this thing called the Eddington limit, which really is, if you like, a, a maximum brightness that they can reach for a given mass, for a given size of black hole. So the very big, the supermassive black holes we see in the centres of galaxies, they're millions of times the mass of our sun, and they become extremely bright in X-rays. The ones we look at are a thousand to a million times less bright than these, what we call active galactic nuclei. But because the maximum brightness they can have for a given mass, for a given size of black hole, scales with the size of the black hole, it means that they may be a million or a thousand times fainter, somewhere in that range. Why do they pump out these X-rays? You get X-rays from black holes. It's basically actually the best way of finding a black hole is to look for this characteristic X-ray emission. You get that when a black hole feeds, when a black hole, what we we call, accretes material from something else. Now, in some black holes, that's just the accretion of gas, just free gas that floats in space. Generally, that's how you see these supermassive black holes at the centre of galaxies. But in certain cases, for the smaller black holes, occasionally you find them orbiting another star. So it's like a binary star system where one of the stars is a black hole. And in those systems, occasionally they're close enough that the black hole can actually pull gas off the outer surface of the star. And that's when you see them. The the gas falls into the intense gravity field of the black hole and gains energy. It 
gets spun round and round the black hole quicker and quicker, and as it does so, it gets hot. It gets so hot that it literally glows in X-rays as it approaches the the edge of the black hole, and that's really how we see it. So this one that you're documenting in Nature, how did you spot it? With the satellites we have at the moment with the big X-ray observatory missions, there are some objects they tend to look at quite frequently. One of those objects is the Andromeda Galaxy. That's because a lot of the X-ray sources you see in neighbouring galaxies are what we call transient. They only turn on for short periods of time. They turn on and then they very quickly turn off again. So we have these programmes where we're monitoring the Andromeda Galaxy fairly regularly to look for sources that come on and then fade and go off again. This is one of those sources. It just so happens that this is one of the two brightest of these sources we've ever seen in the Andromeda Galaxy. Andromeda's about, what, three million light years away? Two to three million, yeah. And when you made these observations, what did you actually see? Okay, so what we saw was we saw one of these transient X-ray sources. We saw a source that we hadn't seen before that had turned on. We looked again a couple of weeks later, and it had got brighter, and over the next few days, it brightened further, until it got up to a luminosity in the units we use of about 10 to the 39 ergs a second. Now, that's interesting because that is the Eddington limit for a stellar mass black hole, one that's roughly the size of our sun. So at that point, we've become really interested in it because it's bright enough to fit into a category of sources we call ultraluminous X-ray sources. They're the ones where we just are uncertain about how big the black holes are in them. So at that point, we started looking a lot closer. And in addition to the X-ray data, we asked various other astronomy facilities to follow it up to take observations. So that included getting some radio data and some optical data as well to support our X-ray observations. And what did you actually find and what did this tell you? Well, the fascinating thing that we saw predominantly was that the source was bright in radio, but not persistently bright in radio. We saw this incredibly luminous outburst of radio emission. So it was similarly bright in radio to how bright it was in NX rays, you know, um, as bright as anything we've ever seen in our own galaxy, which is quite extraordinary. Even more extraordinary, the radio emission seemed to be changing very rapidly. It was fading away pretty rapidly as we were watching it. And over the next um, month when we were able to take observations, that was in combination with a very slow decay of the X-ray emission. Now, that's interesting to us because we've seen very similar behavior in sources in our own galaxy when they're at their brightest And the great thing about the sources in our own galaxy is we know how big the black holes are. The black holes, again, are these stellar mass black holes, these ones that are, you know, of the same order, you know, slightly bigger, but of the same order than our own sun. What that means is that this ultraluminous X-ray source is coming from a stellar mass black hole. And that's really interesting to us because it tells us that, by extension, a lot of these other mysterious ultraluminous X-ray sources we're seeing in other galaxies potentially are stellar mass black holes, and that's the mystery we've been trying to solve for a long time. Of course, one's always got to be aware of anomalies, so how do you know this isn't one? Well, to a large extent, we don't. You're quite right, we need to be aware of anomalies. But it fits into a pattern that we've been seeing a picture that we've been building up of these sources over the last 10 years or so when we've had the satellites in orbit to view them properly. What we think for many of these ultraluminous X-ray sources now is they are sources that are accreting material. They're feeding extremely rapidly at around this Eddington limit. And in fact, we think that actually a lot of them are somehow managing to feed above at rates higher than this Eddington limit, this supposed natural uh, ceiling to how bright they can get. It's interesting to us because this source fits into that picture where we're looking at something that's secreting at about the Eddington limit and it's behaving in a way that we've seen other sources in our galaxy do. So 
it's helping us continue build up this picture and um, you know fitting in with our ideas. Tim Roberts from Durham University speaking with Chris Smith. The RAL Space Conference is an annual event held at the STFC's Rutherford Alperton Labs in Oxfordshire. Each year, staff at RAL Space and invited guests discuss the developments in space science and technology, as well as some of the issues that space scientists face. The last 12 months has seen numerous developments, but one of the most significant was the successful deployment of the Curiosity rover, part of the Mars Science Laboratory mission. Dubbed Seven Minutes of Terror, the landing of the rover employed a novel sky crane platform that lowered the rover to the ground whilst holding itself aloft on rockets. Rob Manning, chief engineer on the Mars Science Laboratory project, was one of this year's invited guests and explained how he came to be involved in the programme. Well, for me, it was, it was a natural because I've been involved from the, uh, the Mars programme really since its rejuvenation after it came out of hibernation, in fact, for, for nearly 20 years, with the start being in a Mars Pathfinder in the 19, early 1990s. And from there, as chief engineer for Mars Pathfinder, that same core crowd went on to develop the Mars Exploration Rover. So it was natural for me to continue that on my efforts with the Mars Science Laboratory. The Curiosity rover has been unique. It's bigger than anything we've ever put out before. It's got more science instruments. It's doing different things. But what do you think have been the sort of key breakthrough moments or the key developments starting from those early 90s rovers that have led to us being here today? Every mission, both from an engineering and a science perspective, has provided a foundation for what Curiosity has become. Curiosity represents by far the most complex vehicle we've ever put in outer space. But we could not have done it without these other missions and all these other experiences. You know, certainly one of the things when you do something new and different, now, and, and there's much new in Curiosity. The, it's a very different rover than Mars exploration rovers, the Spirit and Opportunity rovers. Its power supply is different. Its thermal architecture is vastly different. It's certainly its science capabilities are vastly superior. But the real hard thing for us with, with MSL was, is figuring out how to glue all these pieces together and get them to some sense fit together and work together. And that has been the challenge. So what's been the driver behind it? Has it been the NASA engineers who said, well, this is what we need to put on our new rover? Or has it been the scientists saying, these are the answers that I'm seeking, therefore you need to take this sort of instrument? It's, a, it's done together. The, the, the scientists really told us long ago, that, listen, we would love to see more little rovers, roving geologists, but if you think about it, what we really need next to satisfy our understanding of Mars is geochemistry. And, and it was clear from the very beginning that to, to produce the kind of labor, do the laboratory science we want to do on board the rover, we would have to put laboratories on board, which means the rover gets bigger. The question is how much bigger? And we knew it had to be significantly bigger than Mars Exploration Rover, which we had uh, somewhere uh, just under 20 kilograms of scientific equipment on board. We were trying to get something, you know, five times that much onto this vehicle. And so just that effort alone forced us into whole new modalities of how to get to Mars. So knowing that what the scientists ultimately wanted, not certain exactly what they were going to put on board, we knew we had to have sample analysis capability. We need to be able to extract material from the surface, either through cores or drills or whatever, or scoops or whatever. So we were able to work in parallel while the scientific community made up its mind about specifically what it wanted to do. And particularly, much of the science was selected, virtually all the science was selected via announcements of opportunity that were sent out to the scientific world from NASA. They were competitively selected instruments. Uh, But we all knew what was coming. We knew that those kinds of capabilities were out there and people were working on them. And this is what people wanted to do. So we had to build a rover that ultimately could get us there and do this work. So it was a joint effort, really. And so was it then the pressure to to put this bigger rover out that led to the engineering decisions, that led to this incredible sky crane and the incredible landing mechanism that you had? Well, in many respects, we knew about the limitations of all the landing systems we we had developed over the years, going back to Viking 
but also including Mars Polar Lander, Pathfinder, and this Spirit and Opportunity, um, which were actually in development, had actually barely started. In fact, the idea for to lower the rover and land it on its wheels, on ropes, predates the invention of Spirit and Opportunity. That was, that was done basically in February 2000 uh, when the first idea came along. We discarded the idea right away. This idea actually even goes back even earlier. I mean, in many respects, many of the landing systems used rockets and ropes combination going back to even the, the Soviet Mars lander, which used solid rockets, which we adopted many of those ideas for, for Pathfinder. And so, so, so the idea of converting into a liquid propulsion system and being very – controlling the velocity with precision dates to about that time. And, but we had to think about it. We ended up really spending about three to four years mulling that idea over and trying to understand the physics better, knowing full well that if we go in this direction, we'd have a lot of explaining to do because Buck Rogers told us this is how you do it. And so it, this is how you land on another planet. You put a rocket below you, and you land, and you climb down a ladder, and then you plant your flag. That's how you get to another planet. So when you turn it upside down and put the rocket above you, which lowers you down on ropes, and then have your rocket fly over and crash, that was a very awkward story to tell. Um, but, but, but we had the, both the experienced people from Apollo, Viking, and helicopter pilots to all give us feedback on this idea. And gradually, 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 we realized this was the way to deliver a 900-kilogram rover to another planet. And so all of us were very comfortable that this is the way to go. We just had to prove it to others, and we did. And, of course, it was a phenomenal success. Does that mean that future rover missions are likely to deploy the same sorts of technology? I think it improves the probability that will happen. And what do you see as being the next step? It seems very early, given that we're, we're only just starting to get scientific answers out of curiosity, but what's going to be the next thing that we deploy to Mars? We haven't made up our mind. I mean, I think the, there's two things. One is we need to give curiosity time to discover and to answer this pile of questions that we have about Mars, and certainly about the pile of questions we have about Gale Crater and Mount Sharp. But we also know that we'd like that the, the scientific community has made it quite clear, and we have something we put together called the Decadal Survey. Every ten years, the scientific community gets together and says, "This is what we'd like to do." And one of the things they want to do is they want to go to Mars and bring samples back, because despite the improved quality of in situ science and in situ laboratories, the the laboratories back here on Earth are still vastly better, and bigger, and improving all the time. So scientists would love to be able to bring even a half a kilogram of carefully selected cord samples from rocks on Mars and bring them back to Earth. So that pathway uh, has not been abandoned, um, and I think it's on the path eventually. It's not going to happen for a while, but it will happen. And finally, I would be insulted if I didn't ask somebody from the Curiosity mission about all of the recent, uh, let's say, hype about what was actually found and the suggestion it may have been organic molecules. What's the real story there? Well, the, the, the real story is, is, is our enthusiasm about the whole mission got confused with the enthusiasm for this particular set of measurements, which were really preliminary. I mean, we would never have expected to measure organics, for example, in a sand dune. The reason for that is because Mars, uh, it does not filter ultraviolet light from the sun like, a, like our, our ozone layer does here on Earth. So you expect the organics to be broken down. We wouldn't expect to see no organics. What we saw was a fascinating amount of chemistry, in fact, rather complex chemistry. And we're still trying to make heads or tails of that now. And that's what we're very excited about. Unfortunately, when people see scientists being excited, they assume it's something really big. And unfortunately, we, that message did not get clearly communicated, yet we're still excited. And the possibility of eventually seeing even more complex chemistry when we actually go into rocks, and particularly as we get closer to Mount Sharp, where, the, where we see these layered terrains, and we see uh, embedded rock structures. If we're lucky, we'd have to be lucky to drill into part of Mars that may have had the organic chemistry and environmental conditions that would have allowed life to have existed on Mars at one time. But that's still in the future. Rob Manning, Chief Engineer on the Mars Science Laboratory Project. 
Conferences foster discussion and can lead to interdisciplinary relationships. And it was perhaps with this in mind that the organisers invited Kevin Fong. He's a medical doctor and the director of the Centre for Space Medicine at University College London. And he was invited to talk about the interface of space and medicine. You know, we've been doing human space exploration now for over half a century. And, and I think the thing that we've learned from that and the wider and older programme of unmanned space uh, exploration is how to work across disciplines in very highly complex areas uh, with large and complicated data sets. And, and, and so I think it's really the ethos of working in that way that we could bring to medicine to try and make some disruptive changes. We've already seen some very nice technological examples where, for example, people are using the software that interprets MRI scans in order to interpret deep space images. So there, there are technological crossovers, but it seems that the gist of what you were saying earlier was that it's more about our willingness to go beyond our current boundaries and to explore. And that seems to have some very strong knock-on effects in, in how we understand and help to protect the human body. Certainly I think we're of an age where we've spent many, many, many years going deep into narrower and narrower subspecialities, and I think that's been very fruitful. But now is the time when we've got to recognise that there's at least as much, if not more, to be gained by going across those disciplines and making them work together. Now, that's not easy to do because everyone these days is a super specialist, but I think there are real prizes there. I also think that... We often set up this false dichotomy between exploration, uh, particularly human space exploration, but space exploration in general, and what people regard as the practical realities of the world, the economy, the health problems, etc. I don't think that's really fair. And when you look back at medicine, there was a great thing that's, that uh, someone at The Welcome said to me recently, which was that with medicine we, we, we're very good at superimposing this false narrative of progress you know, like a, a Blue Peter ticker tape timeline of one bit of advance followed by another and all the way to greater glory. Well, actually, when you look at it in detail, it's this haphazard leaping from one thing to another, creating almost as many problems as you solve along the way. It has the feel of exploration when you really look at it for what it is. And if you can accept that medicine in the 20th century, and indeed in all time, has, has been as exploratory as any other area of science, then I think the importance of exploration in medicine is that medicine is exploration. And in exploration in that sense has always been our future and our survival. Thinking of practical problems that you mentioned, there is a lot of talk about the future ideal of sending manned missions to Mars. Now, presumably, we need to develop as much of our understanding of how the human body responds to long periods in space, as much of that as we do the actual technology that will get us there. So this theme of creating technology that we wrap around ourselves to protect ourselves, but then recognising that that same, or those same advances in technology also have exposed us to different risks, is what has made the 20th century what it is it's what's changed our concept of survival in the last 10 short decades since you know scott's expedition to, to now we're going to go to mars at some point i think that's a given before we can do that before we can look out for places to explore we've got to look in at ourselves and understand ourselves better so there's this lovely thing that you see in what the industrial revolution and technology have done for us which is allow us to create these sort of cocoons of protection around ourselves which allow us to extend in exploration. But they've also forced us to look within to ourselves. And so they're, at the same time that they've enabled us to look out and have ambitions to go further, they've also enabled us to look within and try and better understand ourselves. And so I think that's the great beauty of the exploration of our age. It goes in both directions. And, uh, and at the end of the day, that's the goal of all exploration, that you hope that you return after all of your travelling, having a better understanding of yourself. And so now, how do you want to see, or how do you hope to see, people working together to try and make sure that we do look in both directions and achieve both the very long-distance exploration and the internal exploration? So I, I think that you've got to be able to do the both things. I think you've got to be able to do the basic curiosity-driven research, the thing that always has been science. And I think you've got to allow that and foster that because that is the uh, bedrock, really, of uh, the sorts of skills that you need 
to do the more, not more interesting things, but perhaps perhaps the, the things that look more like innovation, that look to government like the attractive things that you get out of science, which is making widgets that allow you to heal people better or make a bigger profit. I think that what you've got to do at the moment is shore up your basic curiosity-driven research, but find a way of superimposing on top of that a system whereby you can uh, move across those disciplines, find the synergies between them, find ways to make those synergies work as innovations both in healthcare and, and for the betterment of the economy. And I do think it's an exciting time, and I think if you get it right, everyone wins, right? Uh, you, you, you get better basic science, and you get a more productive economy. You can't be absolute about this. You can't say, well, you've got to give me an unlimited amount of cash to go and indulge my curiosity. We live in the real world. But, but the opposite is just as bad, which is trying to turn science into some sort of R&D wing whose only purpose is to try and generate jobs and create profit because whatever that is, however successful it turns out to be, it won't won't be science. That's not what science is. Kevin Fong, who in addition to his medical roles is a Wellcome Trust Public Engagement Fellow and Director of UCL's Centre for Space Medicine. This is Naked Astronomy with me, Ben Valsler. Still to come, we'll find out what can be done about space junk, and we'll discover how LOFAR fills a gap in our observational horizons. But first, how do you test technology in space? Finding a launch partner and then designing and building a satellite is prohibitively expensive, so much of the technology that gets used in satellites is already very well established. Testing new tech, therefore, is tricky. To get around some of these problems, Surrey Satellite Technology has developed Tech Demo Sat. And to find out more, I spoke to project manager Victoria O'Donovan. Tech Demo Sat 1, it stands for Technology Demonstration Satellite, and it's a satellite designed to act as an in orbit test bed for new UK technology. So it's essentially a small satellite, it's about a metre cubed, and it houses about 50 kilograms worth of payload on it. So all sorts of experiments and instruments from all over the UK space industry. Why do we need something like this? Surely people have tested their own satellites and their own kits before. Why do we need to bring it together in one? The idea is um, when you have a new piece of equipment or you have a new instrument, customers are very reluctant to fly it. Obviously, when they're paying millions of pounds for a satellite, they don't want to take the chance on something that hasn't been tested, that hasn't been flown, and it hasn't got what you call in-flight heritage. So this is a bed where we can put lots of those new equipments on. We can fly them in space. We can test them. We can check their limits. We can give them that in-flight heritage so that when they go forward and try and sell them on the market, it's proven technologies that customers will take a chance on. And you're using the word customers. Again, I think of, of these sorts of things as being for academics, where we're learning about technology or we're using technology to ask science questions. Does this mean that actually Tech Demosat is, is for a broader audience than that? Certainly, it is for a broader audience. It's for academia, so there's certainly some academia experiments on there, but it's also for industry as well. So for the likes of people like Surrey, when we have our customer that we try and put our new technology on board, they are reluctant. So we want to try some of our new commercial things. So it really is a mixture between industry and academia. If I wanted to test some technology, let's say I have a new bit of communications kit and I want to know if it works in space, how would I go about getting it on Tech Demosat? Okay, so obviously for future Tech Demo Sets, the way it would work, um, the way it worked on Tech Demo Set 1 is we basically put a call out to UK industry. We asked them to tell us a little bit about the technology, the sort of size it was, the volume, the data that it took, what they needed to do with it. We put a few stipulations on how it would need to sort of interact with our bus, so to speak. There was a number of submissions put forward and then they were then gone through by an independent party and they sort of selected the most appropriate and we fit as many on as we could possibly it, it sounds very similar to the CubeSat idea, which is where you have these common parts or these common interfaces that enable you to test lots of things in one go. Does that mean that we've had to sort of standardise the technology in order to be able to do this? 
Unfortunately, we had to go with a standard interface because the, the basis of the programme was that it was low cost and it was rapid access to space. It would be possible to put different interfaces on it, but you would be adding complication, you would be adding time. So in order to meet the objectives, we had to be fairly strict and say everybody conforms to the same thing so that we could do it. But yeah, it would be nice if you could do more than one, but then you'd sort of defeat the purpose of the low cost, easy access. You say low cost, how much does it cost and how does that compare to a a more traditional satellite? The way it worked is that we were given a grant and we essentially paid for what you call just the single string. Um, Most satellites have a prime and a redundant string, so they essentially have backup if something goes wrong. This satellite is lower cost because it just has a prime string of sort of proven equipment and then we've put our development on the, the secondary string. Generally, the grant that was released for the single string was 3.5 million. It's really very difficult to cost a satellite because they're varying different requirements, but sort of standard imaging satellites can be anything between 5 and 10 million as a sort of wet-fingered guess, if you like. So it is a lot cheaper. So for less money, you're testing more technology from a broader range of types of people and types of industries. What sorts of technology are you actually testing with Tech Demo Sat 1? We've got a range of technologies. So we've got a number of radiation monitors, which are obviously of interest to the academic community. We've got a deorbiting sail, which is of a vast amount of interest to everyone. We're all aware of the space debris, space junk sort of issue. So we've got a sail on board that will help us deorbit safely and sort of remove some of that problem. We've also got some new technology associated with the CubeSat community. Um, Obviously, we know they're the way forward and a lot of people are investing a lot of time into those. So to prove some of the things that they need, there's some CubeSat technology on board. There's also a spectrometer on board and there's tentative sort of technology to do with the SAR, the Novasar program coming up forward. So sort of monitoring ocean roughness and sea state, etc. So there is a wide range of technology on board. And what benefit do you get as sorry satellite technologies surely you're just paying some of the overheads to test other people's equipment it is that other people's equipment are on board but as i said the way that it works and in our interest is we've guaranteed the primary string in response we've been allowed to fly out development on the secondary string so we've put a lot of our own investment in on the secondary string that we're flying and if that works that obviously then gives us the heritage and the in-flight test if you like that we need and what is it that you're hoping to test on that We've got a number of new developments. So we've got um, changes to the propulsion system. We've had a look at power system. We're trying new techniques for laying down solar cells. There's new data recorders on there. There's increased capability in sort of the RF area. So there really is a vast array of new technology that we've got. And do you think this sort of democratic vision of space exploration is likely to be the way that things have to move in the future? I think if we can prove that, you know, the industry can work together, you know, we all know that space is a very costly industry. And I think if everyone can pull together and collaborate, it's certainly a very good way forward for the future. Victoria O'Donovan from Surrey Satellite Technology in Guildford. Space debris is becoming a problem. Orbit is fast becoming a dangerous place to be simply because of the number of bits of junk that's up there with you. And it's not just the big objects like decommissioned satellites that you need to worry about. Due to their velocity, even tiny particles like chips of paint can do a great deal of damage if they hit sensitive equipment. To try to prevent collisions or conjunctions, space agencies are tracking the bigger objects and monitoring the rest through various sampling methods such as regular photographic surveys of satellite surfaces. Assessing how much of a priority space debris will become relies on having good modelling and Southampton University's Dr Hugh Lewis addressed the conference to discuss how we got into this situation. The reason we have so many objects in orbit is because we put them there. Our launch activity has essentially contributed to the the space debris environment. And back in the 70s, 80s, we were conducting quite a few space launches. So the the launch rate at the moment is actually uh, quite a long way down compared to uh, that period in history. But still, uh, we're looking at 6 million kilograms of of mass on orbit that we've placed there. And that mass is distributed in in many thousands of of objects and, and fragments. And it's the fragments, really, that uh, we're concerned about. So while we've been conducting space launches, we've been having accidents in space as well. So a lot of our, uh, the upper stages have gone up, some spacecraft as well, 
have been involved in fragmentation events, so possible explosions and so on. And that is continuing. So even in October, we saw the explosion of a, an upper stage. And, and each of one of those events is, is going to be adding hundreds to thousands of, of new fragments into the environment. So really what we want to try and do is to stop that from happening. And a lot of the mitigation efforts that we've got are focused on passivating those uh, upper stages so that there is no more residual propellant on board to, to uh, produce these explosions. But then we have to shift our attention to the collisions that have already occurred and the ones that we are expecting to occur in, in the future and do our best to, to minimise uh, those. So we've littered our own space environment, but now the objects already up there are making the problem worse by colliding and breaking up into ever more smaller objects. Depending on their height above the Earth, these can persist for many years. When these explosions and when these uh, collisions are happening at higher altitudes, the fragments that are produced stay up there for longer. When they're lower down, then it's, the lifetimes are much shorter. And in fact, around about... Uh, 800 to 1,000 kilometres, we're looking at lifetimes of decades to centuries for, for some of these objects. And that is pretty much where the two worst events have taken place, which is the, uh, the, the Chinese anti-satellite test and the, uh, the collision between the Iridium and, and Cosmos satellites. And those fragments are going to be up there for a long time, and they contribute to the, the conjunctions that you see, ESA certainly are seeing with respect to their spacecraft, probably about 50% of all the... Uh, the conjunctions that they monitor uh, involve fragments from those two events. Computational models allow us to investigate quite how persistent these objects may be and how much of a problem they're likely to become. So this uh, software, which we, uh, we like to call Damage, enables us to try out a, uh, lots of different scenarios so we can experiment with lots of different mitigation options, we can experiment with debris removal, and then we can run the simulation forwards for a couple of centuries to see what benefits, if any, we see. The damage model can be used to map active satellites and then superimpose on top the locations of any debris that's bigger than 10 centimetres. When you superimpose the, uh, the actual 10 centimetre environment on, on that, so this is actually data from uh, European Space Agency's master model, you start to s- appreciate the problem that we've got 1,000 active satellites, but here nearly 30,000 objects that we can currently track. So the, the active population is actually a very small percentage of the, the orbiting population. Uh, and, and really that's where the problem lies. We can, we can uh, perform collision avoidance manoeuvres with our active satellites, but they account for such a small fraction of the, the on-orbit population that there will continue to be collisions in the future that, that, that we cannot prevent unless we start to go up and remove the, the objects that actually uh, exist on orbit. Now, with respect to our damage model, what we can do is we can, we can start off with this population and we can run forwards 200 years. And if we don't do anything, the number of objects is 120,000. This is a trackable population. To get to that point, we estimate about 100 catastrophic collisions, uh, of which only a tiny fraction would have involved the active satellites. So we have to try and prevent the collisions between the defunct satellites, the, the, the spent upper stages that are, that are on orbit uh, at the moment and will be placed there in the future. But reducing this number is likely to present many challenges. There are a number of uh, debris mitigation guidelines and uh, there's one in particular which is highly effective in terms of reducing the, the number of collisions that you would see in the future and that is to, to limit the, uh, the lifetime of objects in low Earth orbit after the end of their mission. Uh, sometimes referred to the 25-year rule Uh, this can have a dramatic effect on the the, the future environment. If we just implement that 25-year rule, so at the end of your mission, uh, you you lower the perigee of the the spacecraft or the upper stage uh, so that it enters the Earth's atmosphere, uh, within 25 years, we see tremendous benefits. But it might not be enough. The current population is sufficient to for these collisions to, to continue into the future. So as I've already mentioned, most of the population that we see, the trackable population, they're, they're spent satellites, they're, they're fragments. So there's nothing we can do from down here to, to change their trajectories to avoid the collisions. So we're now really contemplating, I guess, a, a new future, which is going beyond the debris mitigation. You know, mitigation is aimed at the generation of, and producing the generation of new fragments and, and new debris. Now we're talking about actually going up there and and getting rid of objects that that are already there 
that can't perform these collision avoidance manoeuvres. It's active debris removal. I think at the last uh, ESA conference on space debris, this was highlighted as a number one topic in the space debris area, active debris removal. I know there's a, a tremendous amount of activity in this uh, across Europe and, and actually internationally as well. There are many ideas for how we should go about removing debris from orbit, from giant nets through to space harpoons and the use of lasers to slow and therefore lower the orbit of different objects. All of these have pros and cons, so the discussion is far from settled. What I'm interested in really is what happens if we do this? What happens if we start to remove the objects? Uh, and what questions there are. So the technology is, is, is one issue, but we've also got a, another key question. If we're going up to remove spacecraft, then what's, what's the purpose? What's the goal? And identifying that goal is going to be really important in terms of establishing the technology that we'd need. So that's one of the key questions that we've got, but there are others as well. And one of them, the questions really that's important is, is if we don't remove them all, and it would be very expensive if we try to remove them all, then which objects do we choose to remove? So what we've, we've done at Southampton is use our, uh, the damage debris model really to look forward and see where the collisions are actually occurring. And we can identify a number of different clusters. And the key ones are the uh, sun-synchronous orbits. There we have a variety of different kinds of spacecraft and upper stages. And the other one is uh, slightly lower in terms of the orbital inclination. These are essentially on uh, retrograde orbits with respect to the sun-synchronous orbits. So they're travelling very quickly relative to those spacecraft on the sun-synchronous orbits, and they're mainly upper stages. So we've got a kind of a, a variety of, of objects. Um, but if we can go in there and we can say, well, those are the ones that are more likely to be involved in collisions in the future, then those are the objects that we want to be targeting and removing from the environment. And that's precisely what we do in terms of our simulations, simulate that process. And what we find is, it, it, even if we, we, we select in those regions, and it doesn't really matter which of those clusters that we, we target, as long as we target those clusters and we find that we, we, we see some benefit. We have potential technologies and our models are telling us where to go to remove the debris, but removing enough might be too expensive. Uh, it's not as if you're removing one spacecraft and that prevents one collision. Because we don't know that the object is actually going to be involved in a collision, it's, it's essentially it's our best guess, then we have to remove more than we then really we want to, to avoid one collision. And it turns out we have to remove about 50 objects to prevent one collision from a statistical point of view. In our studies, we find that we, we can achieve this if we remove anywhere between 3 and 10 objects per year. Now, just to translate that into, I guess, financial terms, so just in a 50-year period, if we did that, uh, it's 150 to 500 remo removals that we'd have to perform. If we assume that each removal is essentially one new spacecraft that goes up to remove another object, maybe $300 million per removal spacecraft, then you're looking at $1 to $3 billion per year. It's hugely expensive. So somehow we need to be able to kind of say, well, that object is going to be involved in a collision, so if we remove it, we've, we've prevented one collision from occurring. That would be the ideal scenario, and that's what we've got to try and work to, towards. Whether it's possible or not, I don't know. The problem is far from solved, and Dr Lewis argues that we need to get over four new problems before we can start to clean up our space environment. They are consensus, cooperation, collaboration and contributions. There are four other challenges that we need to address, and these kind of encompass the technical, the financial, the political and legal issues. Consensus, do we actually need active debris removal? Can we get away with, with existing mitigation guidelines and so on? Cooperation. Some of the debris targets will belong to one particular country and a removal operation may be performed by another. So some cooperation is required there, certainly from a, a legal and a political point of view. We also will need to collaborate. This will need to be an international effort, and certainly this is something that is highlighted in the US space policy. Contributions. This is going to be very, very expensive, as I've already tried to indicate. So somehow we need to share the cost. Somehow we need to, we need to find the money to, to perform these kind of removal operations before we can even contemplate a, a campaign to remove these objects. Dr Hugh Lewis from Southampton University. 
Finally, the Low Frequency Array, or LOFAR, is a radio telescope that's working at the lowest frequencies accessible from Earth. It features stations scattered across Europe, and it started its official science programme this month. To find out more, I spoke to Derek Mackay-Bukowski, station manager of the LOFAR station at Chilbolton. I think probably the most exciting thing about LOFAR is that it's opening up a huge new parameter space in the, in the scientific observation field. And if you consider that we have looked at low frequencies before, but it's never been with high time resolution, we've never looked at it with high sensitivity. So it's something that we, we glossed over 60 years ago when radio astronomy first got started, and it's been neglected ever since. And since then, we've effectively accumulated 60 years of technological advances. And only now, for the first time, are we going back to look at what was the cream of the science back then, but with all these new resources available to us. And LOFAR makes use of all of them um, in terms of high sensitivity, high time resolution, high spatial resolution, the lot. What will we be looking for? What is this low-frequency radiation useful for seeing? There's no single answer to that. I mean, the problem is is that uh, at these low frequencies, there's lots of different physical effects that you can see at different distances away from us. Some of them are in our own atmosphere, some of them are within the solar system, and others are effectively at the edge of the universe. One of the most interesting uh, cosmological programs on this is the epoch of reionization. Uh, this is the, the moment after the Big Bang, everything's ionized, the universe then cools down, and eventually you get clumping and stars start to form again. And only when those stars ignite do you start to see this reionization effect. And LOFAR, because of the frequency shifts, because it's a low frequency, is perfectly placed to be able to make that detection, which is an incredibly important cosmological result if we can nail it. Now, when I think of telescopes, and in particular radio telescopes, I think of big dishes, usually on their own, but occasionally in twos or threes. LOFAR is an entirely different philosophy of observation, isn't it? Exactly. It's a completely different concept. It's uh, what we call a phased array. So we have not just a single dish, but we actually have an array of antennas. They're distributed over a huge area, as the case may be. It's, it's uh, over 1,300 kilometers of extent across uh, north and western Europe. The individual stations themselves are actually made up of lots and lots and lots of antennas rather than just a single dish and the parts themselves don't move. And so what we use instead is we use an electrical technique to change the direction in which these antennas are sensitive on the sky. In other words, change the direction in which they're pointing. How does that actually work? How can you steer a telescope that doesn't move? <laughs> this is really difficult to explain using just audio. However, OK, let me give it a shot. The way that it works is that if you have a wavefront, uh, radio waves coming in from space, okay, if they are coming in from directly overhead, they will reach all the antennas at the same time. In other words, if they go through the same length of cable at the same time, they will arrive at the detector at the same time. If they're coming in from a, a different direction, if they're coming in from the horizon, they'll arrive at one side of the array before they arrive at the other. So in other words, when the signals go through all those cables, they don't come in lined up together. They're all out of sync. They don't add together, so therefore that particular telescope is sensitive to what's directly overhead, but not sensitive to what's on the horizon. Now, you can change that by delaying the signal as it arrives at certain antennas. So once the signal has arrived, just delay it for a little bit. Store it in RAM, store it in computer memory, and wait for a little bit. And then, only when the rest of the signals have caught up, then let it go through with the rest of the system, and so therefore you do get an addition, and you do end up getting a strong signal. And so by using this digital steering technique, we can actually change the direction in which that array is sensitive on the sky. But, of course, it's digital, so therefore you can make as many copies as you want. So if you want, make a second copy, adjust the delays in a different way, and then you're sensitive to a different direction of the sky. So not only can we go from one side of the sky to the other very quickly, we can actually look in more than one direction at once. And is this also what enables you to have such a huge geographic divide? Because, obviously, if you've got one set of telescopes in France and another one here in England, then there's going to be a huge delay between the two. Uh, that's correct, yes. And so therefore you need extremely good timing uh, between your stations. Uh, you need to make sure that you can timestamp the data that is being taken. We then pass it across commercial networks, which there can be all different levels of lag and latency as, as it goes across Europe. But when it does get to the uh, correlation point, then you can look at those timestamps, you can work out where the data lines up, and you can put it back together again. 
So that gives an opportunity for cooperation as well. Presumably there will be scientists throughout Europe using the same data from the same array of telescopes, but using it in slightly different ways and getting a wider array of scientific answers. Absolutely. Uh, We have cooperation at different levels. So obviously we have cooperation at an engineering level. We have to make sure that all the different systems are compatible with one another and that they all function together smoothly. But at a scientific level, we find that the data that we're taking for some experiments uh, is perfectly valid for more than one research question. And so therefore we can use some of the data for imaging and at the same time we can use it for looking for radio transients. At the same time we can use it for looking at ionospheric research. A whole host of different applications. And again, this is something that is made possible by the fact that we've got digital information that is easy to copy and manipulate. There's been a lot of excitement about the square kilometre array, which uses the same sorts of technology. How has LOFAR sort of paved the way for the SKA? LOFAR has been very influential for the SKA. Uh, One of the big questions that was facing the SKA in its early stages was whether or not it was feasible to use phased array technology for it. And LOFAR has demonstrated that that certainly is the case for for the lower frequencies. If you look at the current design concept for the SKA, you'll see that the SKA actually uses a hybrid of both dishes and phased arrays. And uh, certainly the phased array technology side of the SKA is extremely heavily influenced by the LOFAR work and and the entire LOFAR project. The SKA has still got a few years before it's active, but does this mean that LOFAR will therefore be out of date by the time it switches on? Will it become redundant? (laughs) Um, Well, apart from the issue that the SKA is going to be many years yet before it's uh, fully operational, uh, it's a complementary instrument to LOFAR in several ways. Firstly, LOFAR operates at actually lower frequencies than what the bottom frequency of the SKA is. Additionally, LOFAR is located in a different hemisphere, so therefore while the SKA is looking at the, uh, the southern sky, the Magellanic Clouds, the Galactic Centre, LOFAR is looking off into the northern uh, sky. So therefore, they're complementary instruments uh, to a certain extent. Um, and of course, you know, there is also the issue that LOFAR has also geared up to do a number of these um, ancillary projects related to agriculture, geology, ionospheric research, atmospherics, etc., Speaking of which, LOFAR has just switched on very, very recently, so we should expect to see data coming in very soon and scientific results very soon. What do you think we should be looking out for in the headlines? Yeah, well, this is true. I mean, uh, LOFAR has started uh, its formal scientific operation last Monday, uh, so that's only a few days ago now. But already from the commissioning phase alone, we've seen some pretty major papers coming out regarding uh, pulsars, regarding uh, cosmic ray transients, and uh, regarding extremely deep radio imaging. So I think that over the course of the next six months, uh, we can probably uh, uh, expect some really exciting results coming through. I think pulsars will certainly be one to watch. Uh, The epoch of reionization is another one that everyone is uh, keenly watching. And I think there's also a great possibility for serendipity here. I think that LOFAR, because it is hitting a a relatively unexplored region of the electromagnetic spectrum with so much power uh, and sensitivity, I'm sure that we'll be uncovering a lot of things that we just did not anticipate. Derek Mackay-Bukowski from the Rutherford Appleton Laboratories, station manager of the LOFAR station at Chill Bolton. And that's all we have for this month. But as always, you can find more on our website at thenakedscientists.com slash astronomy. Naked Astronomy is produced by Dominic Ford and me, Ben Valsler, and comes to you from Cambridge University with support from the Science and Technology Facilities Council. Supported by the STFC, this is Naked Astronomy. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientist.com forward slash astronomy.